445 in your hymn book. that I saw this week, ostensibly from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 
And I won't be able to quote it verbatim, word by word, but I will get the essence of it. Spurgeon said, you know, men cannot by their own willfulness, by their own decision-making power, they cannot even cure their toothache. And yet they think that by their will, they will cure their souls. If I have learned anything the last couple of months, it's that uh, all these times that I've said to you that I'm not in control is true. Because I've really found out that I'm just simply not in control. I'll stop talking about the stroke at some point. I will, I promise. Because I am getting much, much better, and I'm so very happy and uh, speaking clearly again, and everything was working again, and every day something comes back, and I'm just so grateful for it. I was walking through my own backyard yesterday because my physical therapist has me walking on uneven ground to kind of check my balance. And uh, I was walking in the backyard by myself yesterday, and I was humming to myself, and I was just happy. And I, I was saying, look at me, and there was no one around to look at me. But I, I was just happy because things have come back. But here's what I know. I know that no amount of willpower on my part was able to prevent me from having a stroke. And no amount of willpower on my part could fix it. My daughter told me that when I was in the hospital that I kept saying repeatedly over and over again, put on my shoes, I'm going home. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to go home. But there were doctors and nurses and my own family members who were saying, you're not going anywhere. And it didn't matter what I willed. It didn't matter how much I willed it. It didn't matter the strength with which I willed it. I was unable to go home. I had to stay put right where I was. Because there were forces bigger than me saying, you're going to lay in that bed. And that's all you're going to do now. God decided to take away my right hand. God took away my right leg. God took away my ability to think clearly. And then when I was at my most dependent, he gave it all back, which is really good, which is really wonderful, which has really confounded some of my therapists. I saw my doctor on Thursday, and he said, if I didn't have this medical report, it would be really hard to believe that you'd had a stroke seven weeks ago. And I said, yeah, but can I drive? <laughs> and he said, yeah. Go try, go do whatever you want to do. You're fine. And I can't help but credit God with healing me and curing me. Amen. Now, because I had to count on him, because I had to be dependent on him to heal me and cure me and even give me the ability to do this again or play piano like I did this morning, the fact that he gave me all that and cured my broken body means that he can cure my soul. Because he, being spirit, has all the ability, has all the power, and has all the grace. And is able, at any point, to declare me righteous. I know that nobody gets out of this life alive. <laughs> I thought I was going a few weeks ago. And I was looking forward to going home, and I still am looking forward to going home, not looking forward to lingering. Don't want to do that stroke thing anymore. But I am still looking forward to going home, and I know that my ability to stand before him and hear words like, well done, good and faithful servant, to hear words that allow me into his heaven that he created, that he owns, that he's in charge of, in order to enter into his presence, he has to let me. It's not up to me. doesn't matter how much I will, how many times I will, how strongly I will it. It's up to him to make that determination because I couldn't even make myself walk. But he could. So I am counting entirely on him yet again to cure my soul.
to heal my soul's diseases. We sang about it a few minutes ago. Who else can heal all my soul's diseases? No, not one. So I really tell you all that to say the theology that we believe here at GCA served me well at my greatest point of dependence. Were I some kind of Arminian, were I convinced that it was all up to me or that my soul could decide things or that God would just have to react to whatever I decided, well, then I'd be abandoned when I was laying there because one of the things about a stroke, I've learned a lot about them lately, one of the things that happens is that your brain is trying so hard to heal that it's almost like you can't think. And so if it were up to me to think right, to get all my theological ducks in a row, to make sure that I was praying enough, if it were up to me to do anything, I was a dead man. Because I was laying there a pathetic creature. My daughter just recently showed me a video of myself in the hospital bed. and It was like I was looking at someone else. I said, wow, that guy's pathetic. The nurse actually said, here, raise your hand up over your head. So I used my head to lift my hand, and I did that. <laughs> and I thought I was doing it. <laughs> there, is that good? Can I go home now? <laughs> it was really sad to look at. And if it had been up to me at that point in that state to keep my faith alive, to keep my theology straight, to keep my relationship with God intact, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. But thank God, I knew this theology of God's grace before it happened. And I knew that even though I couldn't get to him, he could fully get to me. And now, I'm ready to dance a jig, which I won't do, but... My balance is back, my leg is back, my hand is back, my mind is clear, my speech is back, and I can't stop saying thank you. Every little thing, every little thing, every morsel of food that I can swallow, every time that I think something and my hand does it, <laughs> I just can't stop saying thank you. And so I pass that along to you in the hope that when you go through your struggle, because you will. And you didn't have any trouble doing the piano? You think I didn't have any trouble. But yeah, I, I played piano this morning. And I've been playing piano every day since it happened. Because it was a good gauge of how well my hand was working. So, uh, so anyway, I'm very, very grateful. I'm very, very thankful. And uh, I hope that the rest of my life I never lose the memory of what I've learned the last two months. I hope I'm always grateful. I hope I never take anything for granted. And I hope that uh, every word is a word about him. Let's talk a bit about Matthew 26 by way of introduction. At this point in Jesus' preaching career, at this point in his life on planet Earth, he has stopped what we know as his public ministry. In chapter 25, he said the last of his parables, and he said them to a group of people. But at this point, it's really closing in. Once he's been recognized as David's son, once he's come into the streets of Jerusalem and people said, Hosanna to the son of David, once the public proclamation was made of who he was, the last week of his life leading up to the cross starts closing the audience that he's speaking to. And so now it becomes his disciples, now it becomes his closest friends, now it becomes people that he's known throughout his ministry. He has come down from Galilee into Bethany. He's once again gone and seen a family that has known him and loved him and ministered to him in his times of need. And something really remarkable happens. Jesus has been telling his disciples for a very long time that he's going to die. In fact, 
his death as a substitute goes all the way back to Abraham ready to kill Isaac. And then there's a ram caught in a thicket with his head in thorns. Or uh, Isaiah writing, Isaiah 53, substitutionary atonement is developed there as uh, kind of a theological concept. And it confused the early Jews. They didn't understand how Isaiah 53 could work because not only did it say that his body was racked with pain, his visage was marred, the King James language, more than any other man. Not only is there all this crucifixion and death language, but then it says God will see his offspring and prolong his days. And so the Jews looked at that and said, well, then there must be two messiahs to come. There's Messiah ben David, who's the offspring of David, and there's Messiah ben Joseph. And the death passages are about Messiah ben Joseph. And the reigning and ruling passages are about Messiah ben David. What they didn't understand is that Isaiah was writing about one person who would die and then get up again. That he actually would completely die, that he'd be crucified, and then he would resurrect. Whether it was uh, the Jonah and the whale example, he said the same way that Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so I'm going to be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Had they been paying attention, had they been listening, he told them over and over, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be given into the hands of the Gentiles, I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to die, but I'll be back in three days. He kept telling them that. Well, this is sort of the last proclamation of his death here in Matthew 26. The Jews were convinced, since there was a great many people from all over, who had come to Jerusalem because of the feast, because of Passover, the Jews were determined not to kill him on the Passover because there's a lot of people there. And they already know the stories of his miracles and they already know his teaching. And if we kill him that day, they're going to hold him up as a martyr and he's just going to be bigger than he ever was. One thing we cannot do is kill him on the Passover. But it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus was going to die on the Passover. And that's why when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. For 1,400 years, once a year on Passover, the Jews had been killing a lamb. And they had let the scapegoat go. They believed that that was a way that they were going to be cleansed of all their sinfulness before God. And then John says, that's the lamb. I see the lamb. It's that person right there. So he had to die on Passover to fulfill the typology of the Passover lamb. And the Jews were determined not to do it on the Passover. By the way, how much did their opinion count? (laughs) Not at all. How much did their willfulness not to kill them on the Passover count? Nothing. None. Because human beings were going to do exactly what God had foreordained to be done. And then Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, You with wicked hands, you killed the Son of God. You chose a murderer. You wanted a murderer to yourself, and you killed the prince of life. So Peter himself declares these are wicked men, and yet they did exactly what God foreordained to be done. So that's the beginning of chapter 26. That's kind of the setting of Matthew 26. Jesus is getting ready to say one more time, I'm going to die. He says it just as plainly as he can. No more hints, no more parables, no more stories. I'm going to say it as plainly as I can. I'm going to die. In fact, I'm going to die this week. I'm going to die this Passover. Which is why he said to his disciples, with great longing, I have longed to share this Passover with you. Why? Because that's the one that was going to include his death. That's the one where he was going to change their focus. That's the one where the blood and the the wine and the uh, bread, the Passover elements that they had for 1,400 years utilized in order to remember their deliverance from Egypt. He said, now when you do it, don't remember Egypt. Remember me because I'm going to die. 
But good news, I'll be back in three days. But the scripture says that they're going to strike the shepherd and then the sheep are going to scatter. So you would think, logically, you would think that after three and a half years of listening to Jesus say, I'm going to die and I'm going to get up again in three days, you would think that when he got up, there would be 11 people standing outside the grave going, oh, good, we knew you'd be back. You said you'd be back. Oh, look, you're back. And every one of them ran because that's what the scripture says. That means that even his apostles and disciples, the saved ones, even they did exactly what the scripture said they were going to do. So you've got evil men killing Jesus on the Passover because that's what God said. And you've got people who love Jesus, who have been with him for three and a half years, who are going to receive the Spirit of God at Pentecost and take the preaching of Jesus to the whole world, and they scattered because that's what the Scripture said. So whether it's the evil men, whether it's the good men, everybody does exactly what God said they were going to do. And Jesus knew it. Now one more point, and then we'll start reading. Notice in chapter 26... That Jesus is in control. That's why I pointed out that the evil men and the good men did whatever the scripture said they were going to do. Because he's in complete control here. Does anybody remember the album Jesus Christ Superstar? Oh, good. We've got a few who remember it. Okay. Do you remember how that album, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, do you remember how it ended? It ended with, and he was put in a tomb. End of record. It's like, no, no, wait. No, Christianity doesn't just say he was put in a tomb. Christianity is about the fact that he raised. Paul goes on and argues that if he did not resurrect, if he did not raise, if he did not carry our sin debt to heaven, if he did not make that exchange with the Father, then we're of all men most miserable because we only have hope in this life. We need the resurrection. But the record and so many stories believe that Jesus, you sometimes see it in movies or you'll see it on you know, the Learning Channel or the History Channel, looking for the historic Jesus. They always represent or present a guy who's a victim and who these things are happening around him and he can't really help it. And there's political reasons and causes for the death of Jesus. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he's in complete control of his own death. In fact, he said, I have the power to lay my life down. I don't have that power. I'm going to die because I have no power. I don't have the power to keep my life or take my life or keep my life going. But he said, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again because I have this command from my father. That's the kind of authority he had. That's the kind of power that he was exuding at this point. Everything that takes place this week leading to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, not only happened on time, but happened under his authority and his power. There were no mistakes here. He was not a victim. He came to the earth for this reason. He had been saying, it's not my time yet. It's not my time. It's not my time yet. And then he says, okay, it's time. Right now, this is all going to happen. Okay, that was a long introduction. But now we, we kind of have the setting for chapter 26. Chapter 26, starting at verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, what words? Well, chapter 25, after he had taught the parables, after he had taught about judgment to come, after the judgment parables, after he had finished all these words, he then said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. This week, right now, you know in two days it's Passover. And I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over for crucifixion. I even know how I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified by the Romans. The Jews are going to be complicit 
They are going to get together and judge me as a, a person who is a blasphemer because I've made myself the son of God. And they're going to hang me on a tree. This is all going to happen. And it's going to happen in the next two days. It's all occurring right here, right now. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. By the way, why does he think that? It's because it's what the Bible says. The Bible says the Messiah has to come to die. So he came to die. Everything in accordance with what God has laid out. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, was that their own mind? Was that just their free will at work? They got together and they said, you know what, guys? This weekend, since he's going to be here, since he's in Jerusalem, what do you say we kill him? Let's get together and just... Kill him. That will put a stop to the preaching. They were doing this exactly in accordance with what God determined they were going to do. In fact, Peter says it to them. Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews were all gathered together to do whatsoever your hand determined to be done. Which means that God is still in control of these men even as they're devising their wicked plans. But they were saying, verse 5, not during the festival, not during the feast, not during the set time, not at Passover, lest a riot occur among the people. The city is going to be overflowing with people, and we don't want a riot. We want peace in the streets so the Roman persecutors won't come get us. Let's make sure that we don't kill him on Passover. And God decided that he was going to die on Passover, so they ended up killing him exactly on Passover. The predeterminate plan of God will always supersede your choice or your will. Always. If God has said it, it's going to happen. If God has made that determination, it's going to happen. Think about uh, Cyrus in the Old Testament. Isaiah predicted the rise of Cyrus. And he predicted him 150 years before he was even on the planet. Which means that a whole lot of people had a whole lot of babies and named a whole lot of children and decided that that one was going to be named Cyrus and he rose to be the king of Persia. Wasn't that lucky? I mean, if you're going to name somebody 150 years in advance, you better make sure that it turns out that way. And God has all the power and all the authority to make sure that someone who he clearly said, you don't even know me, but I'm going to use you to accomplish what I want to do. Though you don't know me, I've named you by name. I've opened up doors and gates to you. I've made you powerful. I've made you a leader of the Middle Eastern world. You're the king of Persia. And I did all that and I did it in accordance to what I said through my prophets 150 years ago. Once God says it, it's going to happen. That's my point. And once he said that the Messiah is going to die on Passover, well, that's done. That's when it's going to happen, even if men don't want it to. Even if men as a group, the leaders, the peoples, they were all together. They decided as a group, let's not kill them on Passover. Except that God superseded every one of their wills. Now, verse 6 says, Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, which is really interesting, by the way, notice that Jesus was not afraid to go to the home of a leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster box or an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he was as he was reclined at the table. Okay, we have to talk about this because this is not really an uncommon thing to do. First off, nard is the particular spice that she used. Nard comes from a plant in India, in the Himalayas. And the plant, which is a, a, a valerian 
right? We're talking about valerian root. It's a valerian-type plant, but it's got prickly thorns on it, sometimes referred to as fingers. And it's real spiky, and so sometimes you see it referred to as spike nard, and that's why. Well, nard is a very aromatic kind of ointment. And the reason for it was because people in the Middle East 2,000 years ago didn't have access to showers and bathtubs like we do. We like to clean ourselves every single day. But what they would do is just put a lot of really aromatic spices on themselves, and it would mask the odor of being human. And so spikenard was a really expensive form of that kind of oil. And so a rich person would anoint his guests as they came into their house. And that way it would kind of fill the house with nice smells. And so Jesus came into the house and he's reclining at the table and this woman broke an alabaster box. Now what it means is spikenard very often was kept in some kind of a container that was then sealed which is part of why it was so expensive. And then shipping it and from India, and you got to send people to go get it, and it was very expensive ointment. But then you had to break the jar. You had to break the, the alabaster box. You had to break whatever shipping container it was in, and then the oil would drip out of it. And so here's what it's not about, this story that we're about to read. Here's what it's not about. It's not about your giving. I know that shocks people because I have heard giving message after giving message based on the alabaster box. Tom and I came from a church in Los Angeles where one of the offerings we were taught to give was called the alabaster box offering. And the idea behind it was that you would find your most precious item and then you would give it to God, which really meant ultimately you'd give it to the preacher. I don't know why I'm talking against this. (laughs) I should really be talking in favor of this. But, but, But I did that. I found my most precious thing. It was actually a gift from my dad. I mean, it was it was very expensive and it was unique and everything. And I gave it to the church because I believe the alabaster box offering. Nothing in this text is about the alabaster box offering. That was something that the preacher made up in order to get more money out of us. But what it's really about here is the death of Christ. Because in a moment, he's going to say that this action of breaking the box and pouring the oil over him was actually done for his death. Because ointments like these were very commonly used by women to anoint dead bodies, who would wait for three days. After three days, the person was really, truly dead. And then they would go into the dead body. I don't know if you've ever been around a dead body, but they smell bad. And so you would anoint the body with oils and spices so it wouldn't smell as bad, which is why the women, after three days, came to the grave where Jesus was and discovered that it was empty. But they came with their oils and their spices because they were going to anoint the body of Jesus. And so he points out that when she breaks this alabaster box of ointment, she did it to anoint his body because he was going to die. This shocks everybody in the room. They're just partying. Everybody's happy. These are kind of rich people. We're in a nice house. Everything's going good. She pours the ointment over them. Everybody smells the ointment. Oh, that's a nice thing that she's done. And he not only says, Remember what this woman did. He says, wherever this gospel is preached, talk about what this woman did. Because it's about his death. So here we go. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster box or an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, (laughs) and she poured it upon his head as he was reclined at the table. But the disciples, naturally, now in a moment, you're going to find out that the particular person who's really upset about this is Judas. And we're going to read specifically that it's not that he was upset about the poor. 
he was upset because he carried the bag. He has all the money for the group. And he's been pilfering a little money out of the bag. And so anytime he sees something expensive occur, he thinks about the monetary value of it. He says, verse 8, But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? Because it was really expensive ointment. You could find a cheaper ointment. You could find another spice. You could use a different oil. You didn't have to use nard. That's really expensive. Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money given to the poor. Doesn't that sound good? Everything about that sounds right. The money could have been given to the poor. But Jesus, look at the next phrase, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always. Now we know that phrase. We hear that phrase frequently. We hear it often. The poor you have with you always. And people sometimes use that as a justification for their own riches. Or that they haven't done enough charitable things. They'll say, well, even Jesus said you're always going to have the poor with you. But that's not the point Jesus was making. He was saying the priority here is me. I'm the priority. I'm placing myself at the center of the religious universe one more time. I am saying what you think of me determines your eternal destiny. It's about me. And the poor, they were so upset about the poor. What about the poor? We should have sold that ointment and then given the money to the poor. He said, the poor will always be here. You'll always have the poor with you. If you want to do good to the poor, you can do good to them any time. But me, you won't always have. That's the second half of that sentence. And it's not quoted in its original context. They just quote Jesus saying, the poor you'll have with you always. But he was drawing a contrast and saying, me, you won't have always. And whatever you have to do to show your love for me, even if that's sitting at my feet, washing my feet with your tears and wiping it with your hair, whatever you've got to do to express your love for me, that's fair game. The poor you will have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, here's the shocking statement, she did it to prepare me for burial. So he started by telling them, Passover's coming, it's going to be in two days, and I'm going to be crucified. And this woman pouring ointment on my body poured it on me to prepare me for my burial. Now what has he just told them? He's told everybody in the room, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be buried. Just as plain as he can say it. Mm -hmm. Truly I say to you, verse 13, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. How many of you have ever heard a sermon about the woman who poured the vial of... Usually this is used as a giving message, like I said, or it's used as an excuse for the poor. But I very seldom heard it about Jesus' burial, Jesus' priority, Jesus placing himself at the center of the religious universe, and then the instruction, make sure that you tell what she did. And what did she do? She anointed his body for burial. Wherever this gospel is told, tell that this woman did this prophetic thing in anointing me for my death. And their reaction to it is predictable because the very next thing you read is that Judas, one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and made a bargain to betray Jesus. Not only did Jesus place himself, I keep saying this, place himself at the center of the religious universe, but by doing that, he so offended some people that they were willing to betray him and have him killed rather than let him go on saying, this is all about me. And to this very day, if you tell people, it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is completely about Jesus. That will divide people. 
They're either going to be for him or they're going to be against him. But there's no neutrality. People are going to either say, yeah, I, I believe that too. And then you've gained a brother. Or they're going to say, I hate you. I hate him. I hate the talk about him. I, I hate everything about Christianity. I need to stop it. What do you think, really, what do you think the current agenda is about when it started out with uh, abortion? You know, people can do whatever they want. And then it became gay marriage. People can do whatever they want. Now it's choose your bathroom. I don't even know what that's about. But why is the government promoting such a thing? Because all these things run absolutely contrary to Christianity. Christianity says there are morals, there are ethics. From the beginning, he made them male and female. That's the end of it, or at least should be. But then human beings came along and said, we're not going to have this man rule over us. Instead, we're going to make our own rules and our own laws, and we're going to have our own decisions. And, oh, yeah, that whole quiverful, that whole children being a gift from God and a quiverful of children, great blessing from God. No, we're going to kill our babies. We'll just abort them now. And once that passed, once people said, well, that's the law. There's nothing you can do about that. Once that became standardized, people said, now, how do we push the envelope even further? What about uh, he made the male and female, and he made sure in every conversation in the Bible about marriage, it was always male and female. It was always husband and wife. What if we go after that? And they went after that. And now it's the law of the land that men can marry men and women can marry women. And once that was accomplished, once the gay agenda got everything they wanted, well, now how do we push the envelope? I know. There's no gender. Male, female, no. You can choose your gender. You can be whatever you want. Or you can be no gender. Or you can be pan-gender. These days, when you fill out a form, it doesn't even say sex, male, or female. I used to always write no thanks on that, on those forms. But... They used to just say male or female. That was all it was. There are forms now out there that have gender instead of sex and then have like 12 choices. How did it become 12? Well, I'll tell you how it became 12. Because human beings said, we're going to decide for ourselves. We're going to do things our way. Black is white. White is black. Day is night. And that agenda keeps going. And if people don't stand up and say, okay, that's the line. You've gone too far now. If we don't announce that we're not going to live by those rules, they're just going to keep going. What's going to be next? My daughter's guess was what's going to be next is people marrying children. Of yeah, everybody in the room just went, well, yeah. Because you can see it happening. Now, if it had begun with people marrying children, we'd all be outraged. But because we've gone along with everything else incrementally, as the society has grown worse and worse, Christianity has become the enemy. And everything that the government can do to squash morals, ethics, Christian thinking, it will do. Anyway, I didn't mean to get on that. Turn to Luke. Because Luke's going to fill in a couple of blanks for us here. Oh, no, no. Turn to John. Let's do that first. Turn to the book of John. Turn to John 21. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. This is a week. Remember I said this is going to be the week before he's dead. So six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Now think about it logically. If you have found out that there's somebody living in your community who used to be dead, he was dead for three days and then he was raised from the dead by Jesus, don't you want to talk to that guy? Don't you want to go say, hey, where were you for three days? What do you remember? Where did you go? So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one. He was one of those who was reclining at the table with him. In a moment, we're going to find out that a lot of people came to see Lazarus. 
and he was teaching them Christ. I'm in John 12. Did I say 21? <laughs> but I had a stroke, and I inverted my numbers. I am in John 12. John chapter 12. Everybody there now? Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those who was reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped her feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, a moment ago, we read six days before the Passover. And then we read that this happened, Matthew says, that it happened two days before the Passover feast. In a moment, you're going to find out that John agrees with him. There is no conflict here. People have attempted to create a conflict at this point in the Bible, but there's no conflict. In a minute, John is going to agree with Matthew's reckoning. It's just that Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover. But the supper itself and the pouring of the nard on Jesus, that occurred two days before his death. But, verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now notice that he's given us a price here. He has actually said that this ointment is worth 300 denarii. How much was a denarii? Well, that was considered an average day's wage, which means 300 days of total wealth is what it took to buy a box of spikenard. So this is really, really exclusive, expensive perfume, and now it's been broken to be poured over Jesus and to be poured over his feet, and then she wiped it with her hair. She loved Jesus. And Judas was offended by it and said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John writes, Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used it to pilfer what was put in it. So the money box, the bag, depending on your translation, he was in charge of the group's finances. And he was a thief. And he was pilfering from the money. And that's why he made a big deal about 300 denarii. And oh, the poor. He didn't care about the poor. He cared about Judas. He wanted to make sure there was plenty of money there for him to pilfer from. Because the more money that's in the collective bag, the less they're going to notice when something is missing. So he can pilfer away. Jesus said, therefore, this is verse 7, leave her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Notice that both Matthew and John seem to understand what the priority here was. Again, it wasn't about giving, it wasn't about the alabaster box, it wasn't about how expensive the oil was, it wasn't about the poor, it was about one thing only, it's about Jesus is going to die. And he's made that declaration over and over, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were leaving their religion. They were going away, and they were believing in Jesus. And what's the answer when a lot of people believe Jesus? Kill him. Squash it. Stop it. Is it any different today? No. It's going on all over the world today. 
Just stop it. Just stop saying that. Just stop talking about him. Just stop preaching. Just be quiet so that we can go back to doing whatever we were going to do. Be quiet or we'll kill you. Be quiet or we'll kill you. But if you've learned anything this morning, because we're pretty much done here, if you've learned anything this morning, I hope you recognize, number one, the depravity and the evil of the human beings who were out to kill Jesus and out to kill Lazarus. And it was their determination that they were going to do that. And you see the, the wickedness of the son of perdition, Judas himself. You see that he was offended by somebody anointing Jesus. And he made a big deal of it and tried to paint it all up and make it look good by saying it was about the poor. If he had just added, it's for the children, then everybody would have really cared. It's all about the poor. Oh, that's so noble. It's so good sounding. But despite the evil men that Jesus was surrounded with, everything was accomplished exactly according to God's plan. On time, at that place, in Jerusalem, that guy had to die. And that was going to be accomplished. And here God is about to use Judas Judas was doing exactly what he willed to do. Willed to do. People on the internet couldn't see the bunny ears I made on the word willed. But, but he was doing exactly what he was determined to do. He was upset with Jesus. Jesus made it too much about himself. That offended him. And he was a thief and he was a pilferer. He was the son of perdition from the beginning. And when Jesus chose the 12, he chose that guy to come join his 12 because the scripture said that there had to be someone who would eat at his table and raise his hand against him. And Jesus knew who it was. And Jesus not only picked him and added him to the 12, but Jesus made him treasurer. Jesus put him in charge of the money to tempt him even more so that he would be a thief, so that he would be a robber. And all of that occurred exactly as Jesus, by his power and by the scripture and by God's word, all of that had to happen. And so it did. And that's the point. If you come away with nothing else, if you don't remember the details, if you don't remember that spikenard comes from the Indian mountains and the Himalayas, if you don't remember any of that, I hope you remember that God's in control. And I'm going to say it to my dying breath. God is in control, and that's the way I want it. Make sense? Yes, sir. Then we're done here. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace. 